Welcome to the Digital Ecology Podcast. Here we create a window into the backstory of technology adoption in England's National Health Service. I'm your host, Victoria Betton. Today, I'm really happy to have with me the awesome Anne Cooper, who I'm sure many of you know. Most people in digital health know Anne Cooper, it has to be said. When I first met Anne, she was Chief Nurse at NHS Digital. We collaborated on lots of different things. Um, And now she's Chair of Ethical Healthcare Consulting, and she also is the founder and runs the Minerva Programme, which is a leadership programme for women. She did have a podcast called The Leadership Quest, but I've just found out that she's uh, she's ditched it. She's moved on to other things, but I'd like to hear a little bit about that. Um, and today, Anne and I are going to talk about quality improvement, what it means, um, how it works in the NHS and how it relates to digital transformation, if at all, and if it doesn't, how it should. And then I'd like to just touch a little bit on equality and women's leadership um, in the NHS, because I know that's a particular uh, passion of Anne's. So Anne, welcome. Hello, Victoria. How nice to be here with you. So Anne, we have talked about quality improvement and we've talked about digital transformation and where the two should or should not meet. But I'm just thinking for, for people listening who may be understand the digital space but don't understand the improvement space could you maybe just give her like a a few minutes sort of rapid introduction to quality improvement in the NHS please so um, quality improvement in the NHS has always been an interest of mine really and as a clinician I guess we are instinctively interested in how we make things better for patients and service users and I've got a decades long history of working as a clinician in the NHS and that interest in how we make things better has persisted and over those decades I've seen quality improvement or service improvement it's got lots of different names Victoria um, come more and more into the fore of how organisations think and then I started working in digital health and in digital health of course They don't talk about improving things in the same way at all. And I just was intrigued as to why we've got all of these people out there learning how to do PDSA cycles, learning all different methods of doing service improvement. And we've got this whole set of NHS people somewhere else who are completely not using the same language. And I was intrigued as to why when we're trying to get better adoption of technology, we don't tune into the same language and the same processes and we don't use the same methods to try to improve things using technology. So that's where my interest and background is. I'm not a QI specialist by any stretch of the imagination. There are QI specialists in most organizations now NHS organizations Um, and increasingly it's becoming a core skill for clinicians increasingly people are using it in their day-to-day practice so I guess I just became intrigued and interested in why in the technology space we're still not tuned in basically Do you think one of the things I'm always struck by with QI is it tends to be about building the skills of clinicians working in 
daily practice with patients, um, skilling them up in a, in a range of methods that then they can use to make small improvements, incremental improvements within their clinical environment. And so you're sort of training up, upskilling, and people own that change. They're, they're part of that change. They drive that change. And often it strikes me that digital transformation sort of feels it lands on top of people from the sort of corporate ether and often or can feel quite imposed and quite removed. I was I was speaking to a nurse in a, a hospital the other day who said, you know, when I do QI, even if I don't like the change, I've sort of been involved in it. I understand it. I've participated and I'll suck it up and I'll get on with it, even if it doesn't quite meet you know, my requirements or expectations. She said, I just wish the digital team would work in the same way with us so that we're involved. So it just strikes me they they have a very different sort of, they, they come from different places. I think that's right. And I think that people in digital health would be wise to, I, I used to describe how I got my ideas into the system by saying that I would find somebody else's train and I would hitch my wagon onto the back of their train rather than trying to design another off-road vehicle that was probably going in the same direction. And I think what you're saying is right. I don't understand why digital doesn't understand the power that you've described around the way that it engages people and adopts the same methods. Now, there is light, I think, at the end of the tunnel. I, I, I'm starting to see people talking about incremental digital change as opposed to big bang change. And I think that is coming from the same philosophical standpoint that we tackle the things that we need to tackle, but we don't try and do everything in one go because it's too much for people. And it means absolutely that we can't do what you're describing we can't bring them along the journey we can't ask them to participate in that journey in the same way that you would if you were doing it in a smaller more paced way really it's hard though because in tech in technology you can't always do that sometimes you have to switch something off and switch something on but you can be more measured I think about how you scale what you need to do because it's the engagement of the people that's at the heart of this isn't it qi has won the hearts and minds of people in health yes that's really nicely put actually and i guess the digital sector in the nhs is starting to more and more talk about user-centered design and that's much more well established as a discipline and approach in other sectors but in health is relatively new particularly in local NHS organisations. But if you had a Venn diagram, there's loads of overlap between QI and user-centred design. You know, you might talk about standardisation in digital, but you talk about variation and warranted and warranted variation in QI. You talk about process mapping, you talk about service blueprinting. So I wonder sometimes whether user-centred design becomes a slightly unhelpful load of jargon where people are actually would be much more familiar and comfortable with just using the language of QI with a few little tweaks. I think that's right. I think there's something though isn't there about creating new specialisms and power and authority and control and getting outcomes that people are looking for. There's also lots of different drivers that that drive people. A lot of the time in um, health IT, the drivers are around benefits realisation because of the business cases that have been written to get the money to do whatever needs to be done. The drivers for quality sometimes are around money, but are more often about better outcomes, um, better experiences for both staff 
um, and for patients. So, um, so I think sometimes it's the dri- it's power that's at the heart of some of these things, uh, but it's also about the drivers. If you've got the finance department on your back for you for your benefits realisation modelling, you're going to do it, aren't you? Do you think it's naive though to say that if you pay attention to quality and effectiveness, then you start to drive? financial improvements anyway or is that is that too is that too basic a way of putting it no I think that that's absolutely right I think I I think I had a really interesting conversation about the triple aim and of course that's what the triple aim is trying to do isn't it it's trying to ensure people bring those different perspectives because at the heart of that triangle is better outcomes for everybody including financial outcomes and effectiveness and all of those things I don't think it's naive I think we try to I think we try to overcomplicate things sometimes and have you seen um any NHS trusts do this well have you seen trusts sort of bridge the quality improvement digital transformation you know those sort of goals have you seen them brought together or or done in a good way the nearest that I've seen I think this is still quite an early conversation if I'm really honest um, the earliest that I've seen is I recorded a podcast for the innovation collaboration with some people from Imperial in London, um, and they've definitely brought their QI lead into their digital space and are starting to see new conversations emerging um, and different projects and different and prioritising things differently. You know, who's to say what are the most important things to do? Well, the QI team are pretty well placed it, I guess, to work that out. So so I'd say Imperial probably are um, well on the way on their journey. I've seen trusts who have had a QI project and a digital transformation project on pretty much the same topic running in parallel with no idea that the other one's doing anything. And I've seen QI initiatives that needed a digital substrate to them not even think about digital and then you know the reverse in digital transformation where it's all been about the technology but really other than a communication plan and telling people a few things it hasn't really engaged with end users to think about implementation and adoption so I think you're right that it's still a very immature conversation yeah I think so it's interesting you should say that I've seen all of those things too Um, I've also seen there's obviously a direct relationship in QI with the data aspects of digital health the people who hold the data and who sit on all of those areas of knowledge and information may not well be in those debates with the QI teams about what we already know and you know asking all of those wise questions of the data as you're exploring your QI project so I think you're absolutely right these things are siloed quite often and not as close together as they could be. So I'm wondering what we can do then. What might be some really tactical, simple things for if a a CIO is listening to this or a QI lead to think about, well, how can we try and bring these different change capabilities together? I think it's sensible for QI people to, well, there's a bit something about shared governance, maybe. So at least they're cited. There's something about multidisciplinary working. And I've been doing some training with QI people about user-centred design and digital. I think there's something about QI people being exposed to some of the common methods within sort of digital transformation, adoption and so on. So I don't know, those seem like pretty basic ways to to start within current resources. Have you got any other thoughts? As you would expect me to say, I guess, 
Uh, but you know what I'm like. I, it's all about the people at the end of the day. This is all about networks. It's all about understanding. It's all about knowledge transfer. We have to find ways to bring those people together. Organisations would be wise. CIOs would be wise to think about getting to know who their quality improvement team are and what they do. And it's about being curious and paying attention and you know, you have to put yourself out there a little bit, I think, sometimes. We could do with strands on QI appearing at some of the big digital conferences, for example. You know, we could do with different people on the platform. We tend to have the habit of the same people being recirculated around these events. And um, I was one of them. So, you know, I guess, you know, I do know about that. We need to change some of those stories, but it will happen through people. So you're bringing a real nice systems thinking lens onto that really which is find where the energy is and just start to build it be curious connect people together there isn't necessarily a formula but CIOs knowing that those people exist within their trust and starting to build relationships with them and then I guess for startups and vendors who want to you know want to sell their products to the NHS knowing that there are really well-established methods for enabling and facilitating and supporting change which aren't always found within the digital team might be useful for them to be aware of as well. It's not like there's a shortage of information about this Victoria is it? I mean (laughs) two minutes on Google and you put in health and quality improvement and you're going to find loads and loads and loads it's just that connection. It's that bridge between the digital and the QI that people are not making. And if people can start to make that connection, there is loads of stuff out there. We've been doing QI in the NHS, as I say, for decades. Yeah, It exists, yeah. And it's there. And, and the Health Foundation is obviously a really good place to go Absolutely. Do to find information. I was on a ward doing some sort of discovery work not that long ago and I was talking to a surgeon who poo-pooed QI it gave me pause to reflect is QI very much in nursing is it in the nursing domain and is it evenly spread across all professions within the NHS because I I actually don't know the answer to that question and I was curious and I thought there's a woman who knows the answer to that question and her name is Anne Cooper What I think that we know is that you have to make QI systemic in organisations to reap the benefits of that. And systemic implies that it involves everybody rather than it being siloed. And if you look at my organisation, Yorkshire Ambulance, as an example, we have a strategy for QI and everybody, it's about everybody. The projects that we do are not just about paramedics out there on the road, which would be an analogy to your nurses. They're about everybody. We do them, we do QI projects about recruitment with HR. We do them with everybody. So I think it's the context that's the issue. You know, if you're working in an organization where only the nurses are doing QI projects, that's the context. But it doesn't have to be like that. But it takes board leadership and it takes energy from the bottom up you've got to have it both ways otherwise it's just not in my opinion it's just not going to work and I think where I've seen QI 
work well, which is, I think is what you're describing. You have a sort of a, a, a basic sort of training and development for everybody. And then you have more experienced sort of coaches and, and specialist roles. And you tend to train people around delivering a project. So they're applying their learning, which I think is works well for clinicians because that's how their training works as well. So, yeah, that's interesting. How do we do digital transformation then? Because that's very different, isn't it? I was just, as you were just saying that, I thought it was really interesting. So I wonder how many CIOs send any of their staff to do the QI training in their trusts? It would be a really interesting question to ask them, wouldn't it? And if they don't, why don't they? And as a change team, because if you've got a transformation team, a change team in digital or whatever they call their areas in trusts, how well connected are they to QI already? You know, you would expect them to be very closely aligned, wouldn't you? But organisations are incredibly siloed, especially when they're under pressure like they are right now. So, but I mean, it just would be, it just makes perfect sense to me that the team should still, you know, if you've got a service desk, how else are you going to improve the function of the service desk in your organisation? Well, theoretically, you'd be better doing that through a QI project, wouldn't you? So it doesn't just apply to when you're applying technology or trying to make a change. It applies to the services that you deliver to your internal customers in your organisation as well. So it's a win-win for everybody. And I think I think the other thing I'm struck by is there are these various sort of people, resources available within trust, and some of them might sit in strategy, some of them might sit in digital, some of them might sit in QI. You might have your OD team, your patient and public involvement team. You've actually, when you start to put it all together, you've got quite a powerful set of approaches and methods, none of which are, you know, don't have a relationship to each other. All of them can be galvanized. So what, what if we start to join those things up? with the very limited resources everyone has and the pressure people are under. If, if we could find that time to connect those things together, as you described earlier, then that could be quite a powerful thing, really, not just for digital transformation, but for all, all types of change, because there's always going to be a digital subs- substrate or most of the time to any change or improvement. I always felt that um, that the trick that the digital teams were missing was about the use of language. They were the ones who were speaking the foreign language. That's how it always felt to me. So the technologists were speaking a language that most of the people in the system didn't get. But what they needed to achieve was so similar to the QI agenda. It's around change and transformation that if they'd merely adopted the language of QI, they would have got much more buy-in and penetration into the system. It's, it doesn't require high science or <laughs> high magic or anything. It's quite simple, really. Yeah. And yet yeah. we develop our own language. And as you rightly said, you know, um, user-centered design type language they're developing their own language again it's like okay well it becomes a barrier it's not enabling it's a barrier actually I've seen some trust moving in that direction I think it's the right way to go if any CIO listening to the podcast could take away and sort of call to arms really about be curious spend time with your QI team then <laughs> then please do go away and do that and, and report back it's only a matter of time before these sort of approaches get more aligned but, and tell me about Minerva because I remember when you set Minerva up and that was a real labour of love for you because you had to fight tooth and nail to get the resources get it set up just tell us about why you set 
set Minerva up and what it is? I set Minerva up because throughout my 15 years of working in digital health, I noticed that predominantly senior posts were held by men. And I met some fantastic women through my journey who were highly intelligent, articulate, and yet I think felt that they were quite often working in a male-dominated environment. Now, there are notable exceptions. There are lots more women now than there were in senior positions. But I think it's also partly cultural. So how do women negotiate the cultural landscape of digital health? I think that was part of it as well. So I decided I wanted to try and do something about it. I wanted around wondering what to do. And then I, I was offered the opportunity to run uh, a leadership programme. And I decided that I was going to target it at women who work in digital health. And that's what Minerva is. It's a very different type of programme to many other leadership programmes. It's not competency-based. It's not about telling people how they need to make themselves better. It's about saying, hey, look at you, look at your strengths, look at all of the things that you can do. How can we facilitate you feeling more confident to be more of yourself in this cultural landscape that you're in? So that's what Minerva's about, really. And I absolutely love running the program. The feedback I get from the women tells me that I'm doing something really important. Um, For a long, long time, I worked at the centre where the impact that I had directly on people was much less felt by me. But when I run Minerva, when somebody says to you, this program's changed my life in a positive way, that's a big deal, isn't it? Well, it's a big deal for me anyway. It's a big deal for me. So, and I like seeing them finish it. I like seeing them thrive. I like seeing them grow. A lot of people have gone on to more senior positions or made really important life decisions as a, you know, as a, as a consequence really of the process that we take them through. When I, I remember when I first started working in digital health and I'd always worked because the NHS tends to be fairly female dominated until you get to a certain level of seniority. I, I really hadn't thought about it that much before but ended up in pretty much almost completely male dominated environments and it was quite a it took quite a bit of adjusting actually and and I definitely had the being talked over you know all that all that stuff that w- women talk about all the time and, and you said you think it's changed do you think that it's moving think- in the right direction I think it's changing. I think we are more aware of it. There are some fantastic male leaders this year. Every year when I run the programme, I wonder if I'm going to be able to do it again. And I wonder if I'll find the resources to do it. You know, I worked as a part of the system for such a long time that I didn't know what it was like outside to have to sell something like Minerva to be able to earn the crust that I need to earn to run the programme. So, but there are some really fantastic men around if he listens to the podcast I don't know whether he will but there is somebody who sent me seven women from his trust this year so he's definitely supporting and trying to grow the talent in his team and Minerva hopefully will form a part of that so I think we're much more aware than we used to be still think we've got somewhere to go I mean how many times do you go to a conference and see an all-male white panel still it still happens, but we're oh, more aware of it. We're, we're more likely to comment on it. We're more likely to say, excuse me, but where are the women? Um, and when I started that journey sort of 10 years ago, that would have been very uncommon. We're getting better at calling it out and, and big up to the men, the male allies who put women forward, 
who refuse to go on all male panels, who notice those things and create opportunities for Completely. the many brilliant and talented women that are out there. So, you know, to all of you doing that already, please continue to do it. And for those of you that it hasn't occurred to, please do it because it, it makes a big difference, doesn't it, Anne? It does. And for those men who do do that, it hasn't gone unnoticed. And we recognise you and see you and we're grateful. So, uh, but we still have somewhere to go, I think. Is Minerva running at the moment? Or I think you just started a course. So when's the next one if someone was interested? We're just coming to the end of the third programme. So 20 wonderful women uh, will be finishing the programme in March. And then in the springtime, I will need to, we have a full evaluation done. Uh, most years so we'll be evaluating the program and then looking at whether we run it again next year and if so what that looks like I want to stay current I want to uh, make sure that we're serving up what people might need so it's important that we examine what we do carefully as well brilliant and thank you so much for your time if people want to find you they probably already know but if they don't you're Annie Coops on Twitter and the Minerva program presumably people can search for it and find that program and before we finish I always like to ask this question if there's one small thing that could be done to make a real big leap a big step change in the adoption of digital technology in the NHS what would be the thing that you would point at? It's a bit cliched what I'm going to say so I'm really sorry but I still see this and it still makes me groan and it still makes me want to put my head in my hands which is at the end of the day Most of the time, the people that are caring for patients are clinical staff of one guise or another. And I include the big wide family. I'm not talking about just doctors, just nurses. I'm talking about all of those people. They need to be at the heart of digital transformation projects. And I still see projects where they're not. Some of the time, those people will already be operating with substandard systems. They all will already know what they would like to do to make things better. So if you build on what they already are doing, you're probably going to really piss them off. So please, 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 you know, make sure they are at the heart in a, in a meaningful way as well, not a tokenistic way. So so I'm still on there. We haven't got enough CCIOs. We haven't got enough CNIOs, Victoria. I mean, it's much better than it used to be, but we're not there yet. You know, these people are asked to take on roles and responsibilities, which are a heavy burden and not given enough time still to do those jobs. The doctors in particular, I think, um, suffer from that. We need to recognise that they're instrumental in what we need to achieve. And that's a brilliant place to end. Thank you so much for your time. And yeah, it's just been a joy chatting to you. Thank you for listening to the Digital Ecology podcast. Please like, subscribe and review via the usual channels. My book Towards the Digital Health Ecology is available via Amazon. And you can find me on Twitter, LinkedIn and Medium at Victoria Betton.